Section thirteen of Ruth of Boston. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Ruth of Boston, a story of the Massachusetts Bay Colony, by James Otis. Section thirteen. Raising Flax. It would be strange indeed if I failed to set down anything concerning the flax which we spin, because save for it we would have had nothing of linen except what could be brought from England. There is no question but that every one who reads this will know exactly how flax is raised and spun into cloth. But yet I am minded to explain, because we girls of Boston have more to do with raising flax than with any other crop. It is sown early in the spring, and when the plants are three or four inches high, we girls are obliged to weed them, and in so doing are forced to go barefoot, because of the stalks being very tender, and therefore easily broken down. I do not believe there is a child in town who fails to go into the flax fields, because of its being such work as can be done by young people, better than by older ones, who are heavier and more likely to injure the plants. I have said that we are obliged to go barefooted, but where there is a heavy growth of thistles, as is often the case, we girls wear two or three pairs of woolen stockings to protect our feet. If there is any wind, we must perforce work facing it, so that such of the plants as may by accident have been trodden down may be blown back into place by the breeze. Wearying labor it is indeed, this weeding of the flax, and yet those who come into a new world, as we have, must not complain at whatsoever is set them to do, for unless much time is expended, crops cannot be raised, and we children of Boston need only to be reminded of the famine, when we were inclined to laziness, in order to set us in motion. Of course you know that flax is a pretty plant, with a sweet, drooping blue flower, and it ripens about the first of July, when it is pulled up by the roots and laid carefully out to dry, much as if one were making hay. This sort of work is always done by the men and boys, and during two or three days they are forced to turn the flax again and again, so that the sun may come upon every part of it. Preparing Flax I despair of trying to tell anyone who has never seen flax prepared how much and how many different kinds of labor are necessary, before it can be woven into the beautiful linen of which our mothers are so proud. First it must be rippled. The ripple comb is made of stout teeth, either wood or iron, set on a puncheon, and the stalks of flax are pulled through it to break off the seeds, which fall into a cloth that has been spread to catch them, so they may be sown for the next year's harvest. Of course this kind of work is always done in the field, and the stalks are then tied in bundles, which are called baits, and stacked up something after the shape of a tent, being high in the middle and broadened out at the bottom. After the flax has been exposed to the weather long enough to be perfectly dry, then water must be sprinkled over it to rot the leaves, and such portions of the stalk as are not used. Then comes the part of the work which only strong men can perform called breaking the flax, to get from the centre of the stalks the hard, wood-like bun, which is of no value. 
This is done with a machine made of wood, as if you were to set three or four broad knives on a bench, at a certain distance apart, with as many more on a lever to come from above, fitting closely between the lower blades. The upper part of the machine is pulled down with force upon the flax, so that every portion of it is broken. After this comes the scratching, or swingling, which is done by chopping with dull knives on a block of wood, to take out the small pieces of bark which may still be sticking to the fiber. Now that which remains is made up into bundles, and pounded again to clear it yet more thoroughly of what is of no value, after which it is hackled, and the fineness of the flax depends upon the number of times it has been hackled, which means pulling it through a quantity of iron teeth driven into a board. SPINNING, BLEACHING, AND WEAVING FLAX After all this preparation has been done, then comes the spinning, which is, of course, the work of the women and girls. I am proud to say I could spin a skein of thread in one day, before I was thirteen years old, and you must know that this is no mean work for a girl, since it is reckoned that the best of spinners can do no more than two skeins. Of course the skeins must be bleached, otherwise the cloth made from them would look as if woven of tow, and this portion of the work mother is always very careful to look after herself. The skeins must stay in warm water for at least four days, and be wrung out dry every hour or two, when the water is to be changed. Then they are washed in a brook or river until there is no longer any dust or dirt remaining, after which they are bricked, which is the same as if I had said bleached, with ashes and hot water, over and over again, and afterward left to remain in clear water a full week. Then comes more rinsing, beating, washing, drying, and winding on bobbins, so that it may be handy for the loom. The chief men in Boston made a law that all boys and girls be taught to spin flax, and a certain sum of money was set aside to be given those who made the best linen that had been raised, spun, and woven within the town. I am told that in some of the villages near about, the men who make the laws have ordered that every family shall spend so many pounds of flax each year, or pay a very large amount of money as a fine for neglecting to do so. It is not needed I should set down how flax is spun, for there is but one way to spin that I know of, whether the material be wool, cotton, or flax. But I would I might be able to set it down, that whosoever reads could understand— how my mother wove this linen thread into cloth, but it would require more of words than I have patience to write. If there be any who have the desire to know how the linen for their tables or for their clothing is made, I would advise that the matter be studied as one would a lesson in school, for it is most interesting, and father holds to it that every child should be able to make all of that which he wears. WHAT WE GIRLS DO AT HOME in this town of Boston, if we do not know how to make what is needed, then must we perforce go without, because one cannot well afford to spend the time, nor the money, required to send from Boston to London, for whatever may be desired, and wait until it shall be brought across the sea. I wonder if it would interest any of you to know what Susan and I are obliged to do in our homes during each working day of the week. 
I can remember a time when we were put to it to perform certain tasks within six days, and have set down that which we did. It was on a Monday that Susan and I hackled fifty pounds of flax, and tired we were when the day was come to an end. On Tuesday we carted tow, and on Wednesday we spun a skein of linen thread. On Thursday we did the same stint, and on Friday made brooms of guinea-wheat straw. On Saturday we spun twine out of the coarser part of the flax, which is called tow, and of which I will tell you later. All of this we did in a single week, in addition to helping our mothers about the house, and had no idea that we were working overly hard. And now about tow. When flax has been prepared to the stage where it is to be hackled, the fibres pulled out by the comb are yet further divided into cobweb-like threads, and laid carefully one above the other as straight as may be. To these a certain yellow substance sticks, which we call tow, and this can be spun into coarse stuff for aprons and mats, or into twine, which, by the way, is not very strong. It would surprise you, when working flax, to see to how small a bulk it may be reduced. What seems like an enormous stack, before being made ready for spinning, is lessened to such an extent that you may readily take it in both hands. And then comes the next surprise, when you see how much cloth can be woven, out of so small an amount of threads. As for myself, I am not any too fond of working amid the flax, save when it comes to spinning. But such labor is greatest pleasure as compared with soap-making, which is to my mind the most disagreeable and slovenly of all the housewife's duties. MAKING SOAP It seems strange that some industrious person, who is not overly fine in feelings or in habits, does not take it upon himself to make soap for sale. Verily, it would be better that a family like ours buy a quart of soap whenever it is needed, than for the whole house to be turned topsy-turvy because of the dirty work. I wonder if there are in this country any girls so fortunate as not to have been obliged to learn how to make soap. I know of none in Boston, although it may be possible that in Salem, where are some lately come over from England, live those who still know the luxury of hard soap, such as can be bought in London. For those fortunate ones I will set down how my mother and I make a barrel of soap, for once we are forced to get about the task, we contrive to make up as large a quantity as possible. First, as you well know, we save all the grease which cannot be used in cooking, and is not needed for candles, until we have four and twenty pounds of such stuff as the fat of meat, scraps of suet, and drippings of wild turkey or wild geese which last is not pleasant to use in food, and not fit for candles. Well, when we have saved four and twenty pounds of this kind of grease, and set aside six bushels of ashes from what is known as hard wood, such as oak, maple, or birch, we set the leech. I suppose every family in Boston has a leech-barrel, which is a stout cask, perhaps one that has held pickled pork or pickled beef, and has in it at the very bottom a hole where is set a wooden spigot. This barrel is placed upon some sort of platform, built to raise it sufficiently high from the ground, so that a small tub or bucket may be put under the spigot. Then it is filled with ashes, and water poured into the top, which, of course, trickles down until it runs, 
or as some say, is leached out through the spigot, into the bucket, or whatsoever you have put there to receive it. While running slowly through the ashes, it becomes what is called lye, and upon the making of this lye depends the quality of the soap. Now, of course, as the water is poured upon the contents of the barrel, the ashes settle down, and as fast as this comes to pass, yet more ashes are added, and more water thrown in, until one has leached the entire six bushels, when the lye should be strong enough, as mother's receipt for soap-making has it, to bear up an egg or a potato, so that you can see a portion of it on the surface as big as a ninepence. If the lye is not of sufficient strength to stand this test, it must be ladled out and poured over the ashes again, until finally, as will surely be the case, it has become strong enough. The next turn in the work is to build a fire out of doors somewhere, because to make your soap in the house would be a most disagreeable undertaking. One needs a great pot, which should hold as much as one-third of a barrel, and into this is poured half of the grease and half of the lye, to be kept boiling until it has become soap. Now just when that point has been reached, I cannot say, because of not having had sufficient experience. But mother is a master hand at this dirty labor, and always has greatest success with it. Of course, when one kettleful has been boiled down, the remainder of the lye and the remainder of the grease is put in, and worked in the same manner as before. Soap from Bayberries It is possible and we shall do so when time can be spent in making luxuries, to get soap from the tallow of bayberry plums. I have already said that we stew out a kind of vegetable tallow from bayberries, with which to make candles, and this same grease, when boiled with lye, as if you were making soft soap, can be cooked so stiff that when poured into moulds it will form little hard cakes, that are particularly convenient for the cleansing of one's hands. There can be no question, but that bayberry soap will whiten and soften the skin better than does soft soap, but the labor of making it is so disagreeable, that, as Susan says, I had rather my hands were tough and rough than purchase a delicate skin at such an expense. Goose-picking There is another household duty which frets me much, and yet it must be performed, else would we be put to it for quills with which to write and for soft beds, pillows, and quilts. It is goose-picking that I abhor, not only because of its seeming extremely cruel, but on account of its being like the soap-making, dirty work. I question if there be a family in Boston who does not own a flock of geese, and among them many who were once wild. They wander around the streets all summer, paddling in the pools of water, chasing insects, and devouring whatsoever may have been thrown out of the house that is edible. I doubt whether, if it were within the power of our preachers so to do, they would not kill all the geese in the town, for more than once on a Sabbath day have these noisy creatures made such a tumult outside the church that the sermon was actually interrupted. Besides that, you cannot go anywhere without a lot of foolish geese running at your heels, hissing as if you had done something for which you should be ashamed, and they were calling attention to it. Twice each season, in the planting and the harvesting time, must the small feathers be stripped from the live birds, 
and while this is being done, the goose, which has a strong neck and beak, would inflict many a grievous wound if one did not pull an old stocking over its head. Some people are so particular as to have made goose baskets, which in shape are not unlike small gourds, and through the narrow neck of these the head of the goose is thrust, while the body can be held firmly between the knees of whosoever is doing the plucking. Of course, when one is pulling feathers from the bird, the fine fluff, or down, flies everywhere about like snow, and the result is that unless you take the precaution of tying up your hair in cloths, and putting on an old linen dress, from which dirt can readily be shaken, you will be covered from head to foot with these fluffy particles, which are not much larger than snowflakes, and extremely difficult to remove. I have been so busy setting down matters concerning the household, as to forget that I should tell you how our town of Boston has grown, and who of the great men of England have come into it. End of section 13